We're going to have the longest sermon you've ever heard. Sometime. Not this time. No, what? What is it? I mean, I announced we're going to have a short sermon, and it was like, oh, I've got to be there for that. i got to hear this. I say i got to have a long sermon, saying I go there every week. <laughs> Break a record every week. A couple seconds. Anyway. Luke 2, I want to tell the story um, from Luke. The majesty of the Bible is the simple way that God presents truth. That's, that's the thing that I love about Scripture. I know that, and Paul said that there are things that are hard to be understood in Scripture, and yet the core things are just right there for the taking. Amen. And uh, very simple and very wonderful. And most of the tr deep truths of God's word are told to us in stories. And that's, that's the other spectacular thing about the word of God. Uh, just, you know, pound for pound, I would guess that there are more stories in the Bible than there is anything else at all. And so this is the story of all stories. All stories really are a reflection of and imitation of this great story that's woven to us and told to us in Scripture. And what Luke does is really to take uh, what is an extraordinary event. I mean, it, <clears throat> all of history pours into this event and then pours out of it. And Luke takes it all and puts it in simple, terms that we can picture here and that's the beauty of it this is this is the story this is the gospel our savior was born one night in Bethlehem that is a profound truth yes. Man. but <clears throat> it's one of those things you think what is profound about that it's as simple as a baby being born, right? And that's, that is the point. Religions describe salvation often as a process that occurs as a result of some good quality in men, their faith, their good works. Men change the gift of God into the byproduct of a law, almost like it's a law of nature. They believe that man's salvation from the flames of hell rests, as J. Gresham Machen said, rest on some permanent principles of religion instead of being founded upon an unexpected piece of good news. And this is why we need the simplicity of the, the gospel story. Our salvation doesn't rest on principles that have been discovered, but on an event that has happened. Luke tells the story in a very simple, straightforward way, as simple as giving a gift. This is something we'll all do some tonight, this afternoon, some tomorrow, maybe a combination of those, all the build-up, all the anticipation, all the planning, all the preparation, all the squirreling away of gifts and hiding them 
in this place and that place, they will not be discovered, really culminates when you take that gift and you hand it to the person you love as an expression of that love. And this is what God did on the first Christmas morning. Our salvation <clears throat> was given when Christ was born in Bethlehem. God shined the spotlight on a little village there, the place he chose as the place to launch. Luke anchors that event in history. Matthew links it to prophecy. But God wants us to understand that this is the event he used to bring salvation to the world. The central characteristic of Christianity is that it's founded, it's not founded merely upon what always was true, but primarily upon something that happened, something that took place near Jerusalem at a definite time in the world's history. That is the gospel, right there. These are the events that brought salvation to our world. Luke presents the details of the birth of Christ in a very matter-of-fact way. He's not embellishing. He's, he doesn't try to dress the story up like you and I might try to do with the story. He doesn't romanticize it. He doesn't add in, you know, the dramatic flair. He doesn't bring in a plot twist or any of that. He just tells you that this is what happened here. But those details that he gives, though, they give shape to the story. Storytellers call it motif, the context that sets the stage for the story. And the motif here in the story is communicating to you that if the birth of Christ had taken place in palace, if there had been you know, gigantic fireplaces and heavy drapes and ladies' maids and royal decrees and all of that kind of thing, then we would get a very different message from the story. So Luke is giving you, really, the details he includes are intended to give you the sense of poverty. And that's intentional. What did Paul say that he, by his poverty, might be rich? But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. We have a stable, a manger, we have swaddling clothes, a visit from the shepherds. All that is motif. That's the setting that sets the stage for the story. <clears throat> the motif tells us not just what Jesus came to do, but tells us what Jesus came to be. And in fact, we understand what Jesus came to do in light of what he came to be. We learn what he came to do in light of what he came to be. The motif there is intentionally highlighting the poverty of the story. Jesus came because this is the thing. He came to identify with us in our worst moments, not in our best moments. He came to identify with the lowest of us 
and not with the elites. Amen. And see, this is this is what we are up against in our world, really, is we have a set of elites, a ruling class that believes that they know what's best for us and that they will impose certain things in order to hurt us where they want us. And God didn't do that. God came down among us. He came down among us, lived among us. I, I was, you know, and I don't, maybe politics is especially distasteful at this time of year, but, uh, you know, you listen to the White House and they're saying that, you know, Christmas has never been cheaper for families. And you're thinking, yeah, I mean, apparently you don't go shopping ever. You know, you don't, you're just not out among the people. But our Lord entered into our world. That's the key. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. You misunderstand the story if you think that that was something unique to Jesus. It was one of the many ways that he lived the same kind of life as every other child born on that night and on any night in the history of the world. Babies, when they're born, are wrapped. That's what we do. And this is the point. Jesus is communicating with these things. He is communicating what he came to be. That he came not to be served, but to serve. He came, <clears throat> if he came to be served, he would have been born in a palace. He was born in a stable because he was born to serve. He didn't need luxury. He didn't need comfortable living. He was not ashamed <coughs> to be raised in poverty. He left all the riches of heaven to save mankind. What wealth on this earth could ever compare to the wealth that Jesus possessed already when he was in heaven? And what, what I mean, the nicest things that we, that today, if we lived the way the wealthiest people in Christ's day lived, today we would feel deprived. If Jesus came among the, the best advantages in history, it still would be disadvantaged compared to what he enjoyed in, he in heaven. And that's the point the Bible is making, that he emptied himself of all of that. He did away with all of that because he came to serve us. <clears throat> so the motif demonstrates that this story is, first of all, it's, it's grainy, it's authentic, it's, it's the, the kind of story that man would make up if he was inventing a story of a God entering our world. That's the thing that makes me feel like atheists, for all their knowledge of the Bible, don't, they don't know the Bible at all. And they, they may know a lot of verses in the Bible, they might be able to quote a lot of verses, and they might know a lot of facts about the Bible, but they don't understand the story. It's, it's, it's like you watch, you know, a Disney version of um, <laughs> the Chronicles of Narnia, and it's evident they don't get the story. Yeah. They know the details, they don't get the story. And that's the same thing. Atheists claim that, you know, the disciples invented this story, and I'm saying that nobody who is inventing the story of a God coming to this world would 
put that God in the kind of abject poverty that characterized the life of Jesus. None but God himself would write the story this way. Mary brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So let me state it another way. The brightness of the glory of God, the express image of his person, the majesty on high, the king immortal, invisible, the only wise God, chose this as the way to enter our world. The simplicity makes it a stunning story, elegant in its plainness. Shepherds were the first to hear the news of his birth. Now, shepherds held a very low status in Israel, like the bottom of the social ladder. They were considered untrustworthy. Their work made them ceremonially unclean. I can't explain why shepherds in Christ's day were despised the way that they were. It doesn't make sense when you know your greatest Patriarchs were shepherds like Moses, Abraham, um, David, and so on. But the high-class Jews had, in many ways, become like the Egyptians, who in the days of Joseph despised shepherds. And the high-class Jews despised shepherds. So, so, again, this is what God is doing. Like, uh, uh, there's a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> a ho, ho, ho from the Lord. And say, okay. So that's who they don't trust, that's who they despise. I'll announce it to them first. I'll let them be the ones to herald the good news to the world. And it's, again, an indication that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes. The angel first appeared alone to the shepherds. The phrase came upon them in verse 9 can mean that the angel stood next to them. Acts 12 and verse 7 says an angel came upon Peter in his prison cell and led him out of the prison. Now we don't picture the angel hovering over Peter, right? So the came upon them can mean that he came down and stood in their midst. Um, Paul uses the same word in Acts 12 and verse 20 to describe the way he stood by when Stephen was stoned. <clears throat> we have, again, we think of the angel hovering above the shepherds, and almost if I say that the angel came and stood among them, you almost think that that takes away from the story. But still, the Bible tells us uh, about the, the, the light, the glory, of the angel. Now, Jewish tradition suggested that the angel would announce the Messiah's birth from the Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, which is mentioned in Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. And that certainly is possible. We have good reason to think that the shepherds, these shepherds, were ones that watched over the sheep that were designated for the temple for her sacrifice. And the Migdal Eater was a tower in the region of Bethlehem that uh, served as a watchtower over the flock. 
So it's possible that the announcement was made from that tower and that the angel landed there and gave the um, announcement. But it is, I think, just as likely that the angel stood down, came down and stood among the shepherds on the ground there, and that still the glory of God shone around about them. Uh, the glory of God filled the sky when the multitude of the heavenly host praised God. The night <clears throat> must have grown as bright as day. The Greek tells us that the shepherds feared a great fear. They were terrified. And these men were not <clears throat> pushovers. They were not uh, they were not in touch with their feminine side. Right? They were not like modern American males. Uh, they were probably not all that impressed with Hallmark movies. <clears throat> but the appearance of the angel terrified them. So much that the angel needed to calm their fears. And so the angel said to them, fear not. He came with good news. <clears throat> Jesus Christ was born. The angel described Jesus, in fact, as a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now notice, <clears throat> the angel did not announce that a baby was born. The angel announced that a Savior was born. And this news he described as good tidings of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. <coughs> Wycliffe, uh, I'm sorry, good tidings translates the Greek word euangelion. Uh, our word evangelize or evangelism comes from it. So Wycliffe taught that the angel literally said, I evangelize to you a good news. I gospelize to you the good news. It's good news, not just for the shepherds, not just for the people of Bethlehem, not just for the chief priests and the scribes. It is good news for all people, Amen. including us. And then the angel gave them the one clue that they would need in order to find the baby. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now some commentaries suggest that the angel gave them more clear directions for finding the baby than that, that Luke only records that one thing and leaves out other significant details that the shepherds would need in order to find the baby. And that's possible. I mean, you know, it's one of those things we could... We could have a fun debate, I suppose, about whether the angel had to give them more information or that information was adequate. I know if you think about it, you think, well, how would they know how to find the baby if that's all the more detail that they were given? <clears throat> but it's one of those things, I, I would just remind you that we are far removed from that culture. And so there are things that make sense to us that would not make sense to someone who is foreign to our culture. Yeah. I'll give you an example. All right? If I said to you, <clears throat> meet me at the 50-yard line, all right, you would know 
that would eliminate a lot of spots here in Ogden, right? I'll be in Ogden, meet me at the 50-yard line. You would start thinking to yourself, where are the football fields in Ogden, right? Now that's because we know the culture. And a statement like that would narrow down the possible places where we might meet, okay? <clears throat> if I said to you, I mean, you're from Ogden, you know Ogden, maybe you don't live in Ogden, but you know the city. If I said, meet me under the arch, the Ogden arch, you would know exactly where to meet me, right? So when the angel said um, that ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, the angels would be, or the shepherds, I'm sorry, would be able to deduce a few things from that. The first thing they would be able to deduce, and it's really not like, you don't have to be Sherlock to deduce <laughs> this, all right? They would, they would know that this is not a Bethlehemite, because if you lived in Bethlehem, you wouldn't lay your baby in a manger. If you had a house in Bethlehem, that would not be the location. That would not be the crib. Nobody does that. Even in that day, this was not a common thing. So you would be able to deduce, okay, where would a manger be? And you would probably not go check all the garages in Bethlehem for that, because you would figure this is not someone who lives here. This must be a traveler. Then it must be a public stable that they're using, and they would know to look there. So <clears throat> this is not, you know, I mean, shepherds were despised, but let's don't despise them, right? They were not ignorant. They knew their region. They knew their culture. They would be able to solve the riddle without it being a whole lot of riddle right there. <clears throat> so we can surmise then that the information that the angel gave the shepherds was sufficient for the shepherds to find the baby. We can surmise that. First of all, because, and foremost, because the shepherds found the baby, all right? So whether the angel gave them, like slipped them a note with extra information on it, or some other means, they had the information that they need, and they went and found the baby. Now this is something that I think is important, because the the uh, biblical record records for you what you need to know. Okay? Tells you what God wants you to know. And God wants you to know this. But the Bible doesn't spend any ink sweating over how in the world the shepherds found the baby. Doesn't even make it like there was a question about whether or not they would. They didn't have to discreetly go door to door like the wise men, some say. <laughs> that apparently, you know, because they could see the star over Bethlehem, but they couldn't tell what house exactly it was over. <clears throat> what made the baby recognizable would be the fact that it was wrapped like a baby. There you go. <laughs> you go into the hospital, you go to the maternity ward, you can tell where the babies are. They're the ones that are wrapped, right? If no one says, where's the baby? Yeah, I don't know why. The swaddling clothes were not unusual. What was unusual was the babe in the manger. That's unusual. And this is how Jesus distinguished himself, by being ordinary. 
He was the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And yet in his life, the only really remarkable thing about him was how unremarkable he was because his life was not going to be the remarkable thing. His words, and especially his death, that was going to be the remarkable thing. And his resurrection, that would be the remarkable thing. Some have suggested that the Bible mentions the swaddling clothes here to point to the grave clothes at the end of his life that were folded neatly in the tomb after Jesus rose again. I like that. When the angel delivered his message, the Bible tells us that the heavenly host broke out in praise and singing. The heaven exploded with lights and angels and heavenly voices, and the very first Christmas carol was born on that night. And the song was not about Santa Claus roasting chestnuts or silver bells. The song was a simple, passionate offering of praise to Almighty God, the giver of the gift. God the giver gave the gift. God the given was the gift. And when we, when we saw him, Matthew Henry said, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, we were tempted to say, surely this cannot be the Son of God. But see the birth attended as it is here with the choir of angels. And we shall say, surely it can be no other than the Son of God. Concerning whom it was said, when he was brought into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. Luke uses the word host to refer to the choir of angels. Host means that this was the army of heaven. But their song was not a declaration of war. It was an announcement of peace. The song makes three important points. A point about God's glory, a point about God's offering of peace, and a point about God's goodwill toward men, all expressed in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gets the glory for this greatest of all works. Earth has a part in it, and on earth, peace. But men have the benefit of it, goodwill toward men. Amen. God has the honor of it, glory to God in the highest. Men have the joy of it, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The angels then resume their place in the heavens. And that must have been an event in itself. I, you know, I don't think that the angels that filled the skies above Bethlehem I don't think that they just whoop, disappeared. All right, what's the movie? Remember, we have movie trained minds. Not a movie. All right, picture the angels receding into heaven the way a spaceship goes into hyperdrive. But we should take note of the shepherd's response to this angelic message. They were not doubtful. 
They didn't go to Bethlehem to see whether these things were so. They said, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing, listen, which is come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. They weren't checking to see if the angels told them the truth. This was a false alarm, uh, a wild goose chase. They were not doubtful. They didn't believe these things because of their experience with the angels, by the way. They didn't say, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see the things which the angels told us about. They said, the things which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. They believed the word of the Lord. The word spoken by the angels was true. They did not question it. They did not doubt it. They went to Bethlehem to confirm it. Compare that to the attitude of the religious leaders of that day. Did they not see the angels in the sky? How could anyone in Bethlehem miss it? For that matter, how could Jerusalem not be aware of it? When the wise men came into Jerusalem asking their troublesome question, wasn't it the religious leaders who knew where the baby was to be born? But what did they do? They knew the word of God, but it was all academic to them. They longed for the Messiah because that was expected for them to long for the Messiah. You couldn't safely be a religious authority in Israel and not long for the Messiah. Yeah. But they had no desire for him. Yeah. Otherwise, why wouldn't they have traveled to Bethlehem themselves to answer at least the question of what is all this uproar? What is all this noise about? The religious leaders of that day weren't much different than the religious leaders of our day. Even today, so many people have a curiosity about Christ, about Christianity, but no desire to know him. I think that's why the angels announced the birth to the shepherds and not to the religious leaders. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the Levites, they had no heart for it. So God hid it from them. Though these things were not done in a corner, not done in secret. But God hides these things from the wise and prudent and reveals them unto babes. The shepherds left their sheep and traveled from their fields to Bethlehem. They had no light to guide them, no star. The angel's message was light enough for them the word of God. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Right then and there, the shepherds turned into the world's first evangelists. They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. They must have to told the story in many different places to many different people. I assume that they told Mary and Joseph about
about it when they arrived at the stable. Everyone they encountered on their way out of the stable must have heard the innkeepers, the people of Bethlehem. They must have told their families. When they delivered their flocks to the field, they must have told the, the, the <clears throat> priests and Levites. We can guess that Simeon and Anna may have heard the news first from the shepherds. God did not hide the birth of Jesus from the men of that age. I think that in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, they knew, they heard. But notice the way the people of Israel responded to the news though. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds, verse 18 says. They had much to wonder at. The angels, the glory of God shining in the night sky, the multitude of the heavenly host praising God, their song, the message itself was wonderful. The babe must have been wonderful to see. The announcement that the babe was the Messiah. The birthplace, a stable, not a palace. The angels brought the news to shepherds and not to chief priests. These things are amazing, staggering. We could spend a long time thinking about all those things. I won't do it right now. Some of you are already dozing off. <laughs> the, the lunch has popped up, right? All the blood has gone to the stomach and away from the brain. And there you are, fighting. Stay awake. So I won't go into everything. But they wondered. It was a night of wonder. Wonderful night. They wondered. But notice, they didn't inquire. <clears throat> they didn't investigate. They didn't want to know more. They didn't wonder what was their duty to him or what blessings he had in store for them. They just let it drop. Matthew Henry said, oh, the amazing stupidity of the men of that generation. Justly were the things which belonged to their peace hid from their eyes when they thus willfully shut their eyes against them. Why didn't they believe it? Why didn't they care to investigate? John tells us why. Light is entered into the world and men love darkness rather than because their deeds were evil. Yeah. But the Bible tells us that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. For 30 plus years, she kept rolling it around over and over. The Bible uses the imperfect there for kept. She kept all these things. She kept on keeping these things and pondering them in her heart. She just kept rehearsing them and rolling them over for 30 plus years until Luke came and interviewed her. And that tells you, by the way, that when God made the choice of Mary to be the mother of Jesus, it was not an arbitrary choice. God didn't just, you know, pick at random some woman, but he picked a woman who would treasure Jesus, not just as her son, the way a mother treasures her son, 
But a woman who would love Jesus as her own Savior. Mary, you remember, rejoiced. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. She hung on to every word, every event, every wonder in the process of man's servant. She never lost her wonder at the gift that God had given. And as for the shepherds, after they saw the babe, they returned glorifying and praising God. Verse 20 tells us, if the whole nation disregarded their report, so be it. They were the messengers, the human evangelists. They simply praised the Lord for all the things that they had seen and heard as it was told unto them. The swaddling clothes, the manger, the stable, all the marks of humility must have shaped their understanding of the thing. Clearly they recognized that he came for me. He came for us. It was nothing that they expected, but it was exactly what they were told. And if you think about it, it is amazing. It is a glorious thing. This is the glory of Christmas right here. The salvation of the world hung on the life of a helpless infant baby. He had no team of doctors, no nurse assigned to watch over him and check his vitals. Every baby born, every baby born today receives more care and has more to in line to keep it alive than what Jesus had. The God of all the world had no one with expertise, no professional to watch over him and care for him. God put the salvation of the world in the tiny clenched fist of an infant baby. And yet, our salvation could not be in better hands. The mightiest men the world ever knew couldn't offer us so much as a scrap of hope for our salvation. The greatest philosophers in history had only managed to lead us further into the pit. But this tiny, helpless babe in the manger held the hope of the world in its tiny little hands. And there could not be any better place for us to place our hope and trust. That babe in the manger, of course, did not remain a babe in a manger. He grew up, and at the decisive moment in history, when man's sin met the judgment of God, Jesus Christ stepped in, shouldered the load of sin that was ours, and spreading his arms open wide, he died our death so that we might have new life in Christ. Amen. He did that once upon a time in history. That was the event that brought salvation to the world. And for what we have received, may we be truly thankful.